I often go and uh, see people in the hospital. And it's an interesting thing. You go to the hospital and lots of times they have their door shut on their room. And so what I do is I uh, go up to the door and, and I quietly knock and I, I kind of get my ear real close to the door so I can listen to their response. So I'm, I'm listening intently to kind of hear what they say. And the truth is, when I do that, I can tell a lot about how the visit is going to go by the response I get from behind that closed door. Now, so if I knock and I hear this hearty, come in, then I know that means that I'm going to have a pleasant and encouraging visit. If I knock and I hear a labored, come in, <laughs> then that usually means I'm going to have a short and a quick visit. If I hear a uh, short, yeah, <laughs> that usually means I don't really want you here at all. Uh, and to be quite honest, if they hear me coming down the hall, some people won't even acknowledge the knock at all on the door. So, so sometimes you can learn a lot about what someone feels or what someone thinks by the response that they give. There, there is a lot to be learned by someone's response. It says a lot. Uh, the the uh, reflection or inflection of their voice and the and the communication that they give it it, it provides uh, information to you of whether it's going to be glad you're here or I wish you would leave. I heard a story about a parrot that escaped its owner and it flew up on the roof of the owner's home, and so this London resident called for help. First she called the Animal Welfare Agency, and then she finally called the firefighters. And when the London Fire Brigade arrived on the scene, Jesse, the owner of the parrot, gave them uh, a, a nasty surprise. Or excuse me, Jesse is the parrot. Jesse the parrot gave them a nasty surprise. Jesse the parrot cursed at them, the, her would-be rescuers. Now, the uh, watch manager, Chris Swallow, explained the firefighter's protocol for animal rescue. He said, our crew manager was the willing volunteer who went up the ladder to try to bring Jesse down. We were told that to bond with the parrot, you have to tell her, I love you, which is exactly what the crew manager did. While Jesse responded, I love you back. But then we discovered as we got closer, she had a bit of a foul mouth and she kept swearing at us the whole time. She kept swearing at us. As it turns out, Jesse is fine. After a few minutes of interacting with the firefighters, she flew off to a tree and then eventually flew back to her owner. And the embarrassed owner of Jesse the parrot uh, uploaded a video on Twitter where her parrot was saying, thank you to the firefighters. Now here's what I want you to understand. We often come to the one who is trying to save us the same way that parrot came to those that were trying to save her. We proclaim our love to the one who tries to save us or who came to save us while at the same time we are obstinate and standoffish. The one who saves us comes and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to follow me down off of this precarious place that you have placed yourself because of your sin. And we often say, no, we want to do it our own way. I love you, but I'm going to do it the way I want 
to do it. I want you to turn with me in your Bible if you have it, Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at how people respond to Jesus because the way in which they respond to Jesus may reveal a whole lot more about how we respond to Jesus than we might want to admit. So I want to look at the, the responses to Jesus, but before we actually look at the responses, I want to look at how what Jesus does to elicit this response. So if you're in Mark chapter 3, let's read the first four verses together, or you can follow along. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was a Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, he, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. I want you to understand what's going on here. Jesus is in this synagogue teaching on the Sabbath day, and he sees there a man with a deformed hand, and he deliberately decides to heal this man. Notice the man didn't really ask for healing, but Jesus asked him to come and stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus intentionally and deliberately challenges everyone's thinking there. In fact, I believe that Jesus knew that it would, in fact, upset the religious experts. But he did it anyway because he wanted them to understand what was most important. And this is their response, verses 5 and 6. First of all, in verse 4 it says, but they wouldn't answer him. Verse 5, he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Their response to this miracle, their response to being challenged in the synagogue, their response to doing good on the Sabbath instead of doing evil and allowing this man to continue with this deformed hand is to look at Jesus and essentially, and I'm reading into it, essentially say, who do you think you are that you would talk to us that way? Who do you think you are? We know what we're talking about. We know who, what we should do on the Sabbath day. We're the religious experts. Who do you think you are? They're furious, in my opinion, that they have been publicly challenged. And they were not about to be openly taunted. And so they went about trying to figure out how to eliminate Jesus completely. In fact, I think Proverbs chapter 3 probably describes these guys. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 33 through 35, it says, The Lord curses the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the upright. The Lord mocks the mocker, but is gracious to the humble. The wise inherit honor, but the fools are put to shame. The point is, if you well up against God and you say, No, I know what's best, you're probably going to fall on the wrong side of his judgment. God mocks the mockers. He exposes the faulty thinking of the proud. And in fact, this verse in Proverbs chapter 3 is quoted in James and is also quoted in 1 Peter where they're reminding us God helps those who are humble but opposes those who are proud. Now we're quick to judge these Pharisees. 
We're quick to judge these Pharisees. Where is their humility? Why wouldn't they listen to Jesus? Why wouldn't they listen to the Lord of Lords? But we also find that sometimes we're a little bit more proud than we are humble. We're a little bit more proud than we ought to be. I found that uh, Caitlin Cooper and Sarah Brownwell had a pretty interesting uh, thought. They're doctoral students and assistant One's a doctoral student, the other's an assistant professor at Arizona State University School of Life Sciences. They recently published a study confirming what they and countless other women have experienced firsthand from the male students in that same field. They said that the male students often overestimate their own intelligence, achievements, and credentials while underestimating their female classmates in the process. After working in pairs and groups, a group of undergrad biology students were asked to estimate their own abilities relative to the rest of the class. Now, statistically, you know, you'd be at 50%, you know, average is 50%. You would think most people would say, well, I'm probably at the 50% range. But the men ranked themselves at 66%, while the women ranked themselves on average at 33%. They were, they were above 33, while the men thought they were above 66% of the class. This echoes what has been previously shown in literature, Cooper and Brownwell report. A review of nearly 20 published papers on self-estimated intelligence concluded that men rate themselves higher than women on self-estimated intelligence. Another research from Vanderbilt University noted, boys are often more comfortable saying they understand something without having an actual deep understanding of that something. Now I'm sure this may apply to some of you men, but it does not apply to me. <laughs> Isn't that how we often think? It does not apply to me. It applies to someone else, but it doesn't apply to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. It is so easy for us to believe that we have all the answers. It's so easy for us to believe that we know exactly what God wants for your life. For someone else's life, I know exactly what God wants for you. I know exactly what God wants you to do. I know exactly where you are failing, God, because you're not doing what I know you should be doing. It's so easy for us to believe that we have all the answers to be filled with pride and be angered by anyone who challenges our knowledge, our thought, our convictions. Who do you think you are? We might say. But there's some other responses in this chapter. Verses 7 and 8, this is what it says. Verse 7 and 8 in our text. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. 
Now you might be looking at this and you say, well, what response is found in this text? I mean, what response are we getting here? Jesus is just out doing miracles. He's healing people. He's taking care of needs. But did you notice that the people are coming and what are they coming for? Are they coming to know Jesus better? No, they're coming to find uh, being cured of their ailment. They're coming and they're saying, what will you do for me, Jesus? What will you do for me? In fact, over and over again throughout the gospel, you see people coming to Jesus. And so often they're coming to Jesus specifically for what are you going to do for me, Jesus? Will you heal me, Jesus? Will you feed me, Jesus? Will you be on my side, Jesus? Will you set me free from Roman tyranny, Jesus? And constantly there's a stream of people coming to Jesus. Me, 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 me is what I want from you, Jesus. What have you done for me lately, Jesus? In fact, when I was in high school, right in the middle of my high school years in 1986, a song came out by Janet Jackson, and the name of the song was, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Ooh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> That's how it went, yeah. You got it. You got it. And essentially the song is just a complaint. She's complaining that her boyfriend isn't treating her like she should be, like he used to. He's not taking care of her. And she argues that she's not asking for anything more than what she actually deserves. But he just isn't getting it. And so she constantly, the entire song is essentially, what have you done for me lately? Over and over and over Again, and the truth is, I think so often that's exactly how we come to Jesus. What have you done for me lately, Jesus? We know, just like Bill said, we have the greatest gift ever, the greatest treasure ever, and yet we still come to Jesus. What have you done for me lately? A few chapters later in Mark, we find Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people, uh, some estimates 15,000 plus with women and children included, but nonetheless, he's feeding them with, you know, just a few loaves, a few fish. He just keeps multiplying that food, and they are eat till they're full. And then just a little while later, they come back, and they're wanting to be fed again. In fact, he talks about that in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They come looking for Jesus because they're like, "Woo, free bread. I don't have to work anymore. This is the ultimate welfare state. Woo, I'm going to follow Jesus. He's going to take care of my every single need. All we have to do is find one loaf and we're good. One fish and we're good. He'll take care of all the rest of that. And how often do we think the same? How often do we come to Jesus? I deserve more. I've been serving you my entire life. I deserve more than this. I deserve better than this. You should be healing me. You should be taking care of me. And you should be doing it right now. You should be doing it right now. Because I asked. But the responses go on. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. In 21, it says, 
One time Jesus entered the house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. We find our third response in our text this morning, and that is, you're out of your mind. You are out of your mind, Jesus. That, that, you're, you're crazy. Now I want you to understand, I'm sure his family has been hearing the stories. They have heard about Jesus going into the synagogue and challenging the religious experts, embarrassing the religious experts in front of everyone. I'm sure they have heard how he has essentially said, you know, the scribal law, scribal law that you've been uh, you know, following, it really has no bearing on what is truly what God wants in your life. And so they know that. They also know, they've heard, hey, he called this ragtag bunch of people to follow him. He's got tax collectors. He's got sinners. He's got fishermen. What kind of group of people is, is he gathering around himself? And so his family, thinking they know best, they come and they say, you have lost it and we've got to get you home. We've got to take you back. We've got to figure out some way to get this corrected because you are out of your mind. In fact, Jesus <laughs> lets us know that sometimes we think the same about him, that, that we think he's out of his mind. In fact, one of his closest disciples thought he was out of his mind. If you go to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, it says, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. And Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. It's easy for us to be critical of, of Peter right here where, where he says, Jesus, that ain't right. You're out of your mind. That's not going to happen. We're going to protect you. We're going to fight by you. You've got power. You can handle this. You're just going to shut this down. Stop thinking like that, Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you're the one who's out of your mind. You're the one who's got the wrong thinking. How often do we, we think Jesus is out of his mind because he expects us to take a stand at work? You're out of your mind. I'm not taking a stand at work. They might fire me. They might demote me. They might ostracize me if I take a stand at work. Or we think he's out of his mind when he says, you need to forgive. We're like, no, I'm not going to forgive. You don't understand what that person did to me. You don't understand how long I've held on to this grievance. You don't understand the fire in my heart because of the hatred I have for them. I'm not going to forgive them. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind, Jesus. I'm not going to give sacrificially. What do you think? I'm not going to give sacrificially. The Bible says you own a cattle on a thousand hills. I'm not giving sacrificial. You got all you need. You got all you need. I'm not doing that. You're out of your mind. Don't expect me to give with sacrifice. You're out of your mind, Jesus. I'm not going to talk about you to other people. I'm not going to evangelize. 
The extent of my evangelism, Jesus is going to be a little fish on the back of my car and Christian music playing on the stereo. That's as good as you're going to get. You've lost it if you think I'm going to go and tell people about you. I want you to understand the life Jesus has called us to doesn't coincide with the life the world has convinced us we need to live. You have to understand that. The life Jesus has called us to is a life that is completely in the opposite, uh, on the other side of the coin of what the world says you need to do. And you got to separate and say, I'm going to stop doing what the world calls, and I'm going to start doing what Jesus calls for me to do. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your self-nature, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. How often do we say, you're out of your mind. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. You are asking too much. And the whole time Jesus is saying, no, I'm not. Because from the get-go, I've been asking for everything. You just didn't understand it. But that's the call. Give me everything. Everything of who you are. There's one last response I want to look at this morning. It's the very end of the chapter. Verses uh, 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mothers and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus looks at this group of people that are sitting around him, holding on to his every word. And they have responded differently than anyone else in this chapter. They have responded by essentially saying, you, Jesus, are all I want and all I need. You, Jesus, are all I want and all I need. I love this last response. I love this. Jesus looks at these disciples and he lets them all know, hey, you're my family because you obey my father. You're willing to set aside your own will to follow my father's will. In fact, putting that into the context of Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where he says this, if anyone wants to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is calling for us to put him first above every other relationship, above our parents, above our siblings, above our spouse, above our kids. He's calling for us to follow him and to do the Father's will, whatever the cost, regardless of fear, setting aside of self to follow 
him, to follow him. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul just wanted to please Jesus and to live for him. We looked at four different responses this morning in chapter 3. And I just want to ask you, how are you responding to Jesus? We have seen the whole gamut here of responses. We've seen those who have challenged him. We've seen those who just want something from them. We've seen those who think he has lost his mind. We have seen those who love him. Now I know that instinctively we think to ourselves, I am in that last category. I am one of the ones who love him. Well, I surely hope that is true. But do you ever challenge him? Well, well, surely you don't mean that. I mean, surely you don't mean that, Jesus. Do you only come to him when you want something? Have you ever looked at your prayer life and realized that the only thing you ever do in prayer is to ask Jesus for something? Something? It's always something. I want something. You know, I want better health. I want my friend to have better health. I want great grandma's big toe to feel better. You know, we speak about every kind of ailment there ever was, but we never talk to him. We never praise him. We never thank him. We never sit there and meditate on his word and listen to him. It's always, I want, I want, I want. Have you ever noticed that about your prayer life? Do we sometimes think to ourselves, He's out of his mind. I don't know what he's thinking. I can't believe he would even ask me to do something. I mean, how could forgiveness, me forgiving someone else, actually set me free? How does that set me free? It sounds like I'm setting them free. How has it set me free? How is it better to give than to get? That doesn't make any sense to me. How is serving others going to bring me joy? Or do we simply and excitedly follow Jesus without hesitation, wanting to be used by God, willing to go to any lengths, whatever they are, to build His kingdom, to be a part of that, to make a difference. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, we are told, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. How have you been responding to Jesus? Has he got it all? Or are you holding some things back? You're thinking he's a little crazy for asking for some of those things. You're challenging him or asking him just what you want. Or have you just submitted and say, whatever you want, God? What's your response?